This is Detroit Today on 1019 WBET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. When Rosemary Riley filled out the petition for a temporary protective order, she checked two boxes. One saying her ex-boyfriend had firearms, the other saying he had threatened to use them. A 21-year-old nursing student wrote, quote, He told me if I left him that he would kill himself and ruin my life. A judge in Kent County, Michigan, signed the order, but did not check the box that would have prohibited Jeremy Kelly from keeping his guns. And in fact, of the 31 women in the county who swore their partners had threatened to shoot them that month, only nine were given gun restrictions on their order. People in abusive relationships are in the gravest danger of being killed in the days right after they get a protective order. Yet in 29 states and the District of Columbia, there's really no process in place for taking guns away from the subjects of protective orders. In another 13, including Michigan, a judge gets to decide. That system left Riley unprotected, and less than a month after she got her protective order, her ex shot and killed her before killing himself. That's the story told in a new investigative report from The Trace, a national nonprofit news organization that covers guns here in America. Reporter Ann Givens takes an in-depth look at Michigan and other states, which often fail to protect people who are granted personal protection orders. Ann Givens joins me now to talk about her reporting. Ann, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. So this is a pretty unbelievable story, just at first blush. But give us an overview of your findings uh, about how often this happens and why it happens in so many states. Sure. So uh, I initially I read about this story not too long after it happened. Uh, it happened in 2016, and it was just such a devastating account um, of a person who really knew that she was in grave danger, um, you know, had taken all the steps that a reasonable person would take to protect herself and uh, still wound up being killed. Uh, And so I just decided to sort of make some calls and see if I could, you know, get to the bottom of some of the systems that had failed her. Um, And the thing that struck me first was uh, when I spoke to a lawyer who was representing Rosemary Riley's family, just one thing that he mentioned was that uh, she had uh, been granted a temporary protective order um, and asked for a gun restriction, and uh, the judge had given her the order, but uh, failed to check that box that would have given her, uh, given her the gun restriction. Hmm. Um, and it just seemed like such a, um, you know, such an, an easy and basic step that might have protected her that we wanted to sort of dig in a little bit, um, a little bit further to see, you know, how this works. So uh, as you mentioned, there are 29 states in the District of Columbia where when you get a temporary protective order, um, there's really no mechanism to take the guns away from the from the uh, subject of the protective order. Uh, and then there are not, there are 13 other states, including Michigan, where um, 
where a judge decides whether or not to take uh, the guns away from the subject of the protective order. Uh, So we did research in four states. Uh, It was Michigan, South Dakota, Arizona, and New Hampshire, um, just to look at um, sort of how much of a correlation there is between when a person says that they are and presents evidence that they are in danger of being shot and when a judge grants a gun restriction on their order. And what we found was really um, very little correlation at all, that in most places it would depend on which county you lived on in or which uh, judge heard your case more than in the strength of the evidence that you were presenting uh, that you were in danger. Mm. And Talk about the relationship between this lack of process and this lack of certainty that you can take guns from potential abusers or people who have got protective orders against them uh, and the Second Amendment. I think that's got to be looming large here, this idea that we have in this country that there is a constitutionally protected right to have a firearm, uh, it seems that uh, often there's a tension that that prevents us from being able uh, to do things that would stop violence uh, related to firearms because of that Second Amendment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's uh, something that uh, you will hear a lot, uh, which is um, this, what a, what a, Temporary protective order is is a, a protective order that you're granted before um, you are able to get to a hearing before a judge. So the evidence in the case has not been heard uh, in, in a court of law. And there are certainly are people who would say um, in that period where the defendant has not yet had a chance to um, have his or her say in a court of law, Um, it is premature to take that person's guns away. Um, What I heard a lot of experts and advocates saying in response to that is that actually there is a significant burden of proof in most states to getting a protective order. So, you know, they don't just hand them out like candy. You have to, you have to, you know, present an affidavit. In some cases you have to present evidence. And if there is enough evidence um, these people would argue to grant a person a protective order, which is, you know, no small thing, mm-hmm. then there should be enough evidence to order the subject of the protective orders, guns removed, at least until there is a hearing. And obviously, if there's a hearing and the evidence is found to be wanting, uh, there would be a um, an opportunity at that point to restore the person's gun rights. Well, and in the case of Rosemary... Riley, this all goes terribly wrong. The judge does not uh, remove firearms from the equation, and you end up with two deaths uh, as as a result. And and again, it shows that there's there's a tension that's that's not properly resolved between the gun rights and the 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 need, the necessity, the urgent necessity to protect somebody. I think that's I think that's absolutely right. This was a case where um, I think people who uh, you know this was Rosemary Riley's ex-boyfriend um, who uh, you know they had had a, a troubled relationship. He was um, a person who m- many of the people who cared about him were deeply 
concerned about his safety and um he had been sort of such a, a close part of Rosemary Riley's family also that her family was concerned about them both. Um, and uh, when he killed her and then took his own life, uh, I think that, you know, one thing that I heard everyone, including her family, say is that it was um, it was a tragedy that took two people's lives that uh, that really didn't have to happen. Mm. Uh, I'm talking with Ann Givens, an investigative news and feature writer at The Trace, which is a national news nonprofit that covers guns in America. Her newest investigation includes Michigan and is titled, In 13 States, a Judge Decides Whether an Abuser is Allowed to Keep Their Guns. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us if you believe there's a better way of determining whether people who have personal protection orders against them should be allowed to carry firearms. Or do you think it's dangerous for judges to be making this determination at all? Should there be another process in place? We especially want to hear from you if you've ever been involved in either side of a situation like this and what it means to you. As always, the number here on the phones is 313 That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation that way. Let's go to Dan in Wald Lake. Dan, welcome to the program. Good morning, Stephen. Hi. These PPO hearings, especially in particular Wayne County, um, at the uh, whatever 14th floor of the Wayne County building, they completely lack due process. For instance, the uh, mover, the person filing the PPO, will come, generally come in with screenshots of text messages. They'll present these on their cell phone to the magistrate that's hearing the PPO order. This is after the initial filing for the PPO, where a judge can rule an ex parte order to grant it or not grant it. But then there's generally a hearing scheduled 14 days later. They completely lack due process because the respondent in these cases never sees the information like a uh, disclosure of what the evidence is against them. Maybe, say, 50 phone numbers this person says are calling me, and it's this person. If you call these phone numbers back, you find out they're like the Ann Arbor hot tub spa, the gals going to the library, the library called her. And there's no opportunity for it. And then to have your Second Amendment rights violated, because anybody that gets that's a lawful gun owner that has a PPO knows that they're not supposed to be in possession of a firearm. It says clearly right on it. Mm. Uh, so, so the fact that somebody chooses at this point to break the law, get a firearm, kill his girlfriend, and then kill himself is something completely outside the the bounds of a law-abiding citizen. So, so Dan, in your in your judgment, then it's a rush to judgment to to take firearms from somebody who's the subject of a protective order. No, the weak in this country have a false sense of security that a piece of paper will protect them from anything, and that by calling nine one one, I think calling them. I think calling them the weak. I mean, uh, I think the weak uh, people are the ones who prey on. Uh, their partners, uh, but 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 I appreciate the call, uh, uh, Dan. Uh, Ann Givens, respond to what Dan's saying there about this, especially about this idea that the law is clear enough that if you're the subject of a of a PPO, you're you're not supposed to have a gun, and so uh, enhancing 
uh, the, the, the rules or enhancing the process by which you determine to, to withdraw those firearms won't stop people who are determined to break the law anyway. Sure. I think, you know, I think it brings up some good points. So uh, to start, let me just be clear about sort of what the focus of my investigation was, um, which was temporary protective orders. And those are the protective orders that um, would be in place before a hearing. If you go to a hearing and a judge grants a permanent protective order, uh, then it's true that there's automatically a federal law that would require the person to relinquish their firearms. So I'm talking about this very specific um, temporary protective order that happens before the hearing, um, but which is no small thing because that is the period, as you mentioned in your introduction, when um, a person is most in danger of being killed uh, by their partner is in sort of the days and the months immediately after getting a protective order. Mm. Um, so I think that, so, so, you know, so there's that. And it is true that usually the person um, who is the subject of the, the protective order will not have had uh, his or her chance to stand before a judge and, pres and uh, refute the evidence while that temporary order is in place. I think what I was hearing advocates say is um, really, you know, if you're going to choose between erring on uh, the side of potentially saving a life or on the air of, I'm sorry, on the side of taking a person's guns away for, you know, a couple of weeks until they can get to the courthouse for a hearing, isn't it better to, uh, to err on the side of keeping a, a person safe. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Again, uh, Dan, don't agree with everything that uh, you said there, but do appreciate uh, the call and the comments. Uh, we've only got about a minute left, uh, Anne, but, but what would, what would solve our problems here in Michigan in your, in your view, or what would move us closer to a, a safer process here? Would it be taking this discretion away from judges? I would. Uh, I'm not sure I'm the person to solve the problem, but um, but I do think that the thing that we really found is that there's sort of no clear guideline um, that judges are asked to use to make these decisions. So we looked at, you know, one county in Michigan where people who said they weren't in danger, their partner, you know, or the person that they were in fear of didn't have a gun. Uh, they all got firearms restrictions and other counties in Michigan were people who said he held a gun to my head. He threatened me with a gun in front of my children, didn't get the firearms restrictions. Mm. So um, I don't know if the I don't know if the answer is a federal law that makes them automatic. But certainly, um, you know, some thought should go into uh, greater consistency on these orders so that you know, whether or not you get the restriction doesn't depend on, you know, who yeah. happens to be sitting behind the bench or which county you happen to go to get one in. Sure. Okay, Anne Givens of The Trace, really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you very much for joining. I really appreciate it. It's going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow when we're going to talk about whether remote work is here to stay. Derek Thompson of The Atlantic has written an interesting piece about this, and he will join us for the conversation. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.